Hello, and welcome to Around the Table, a podcast about food stories from science to everyday life. I'm here with Lou Chady, who is the co-owner of Westford Hill Distillers in Ashford, Connecticut. Hi, Lou. Can you tell us a bit about Westford Hill and what you've been up to during the lockdown? Sure. Uh, We were started in 1997. My wife and I, who is the other uh, co-owner, started this business uh, when we saw an opportunity for small-scale craft distillation. And at that point, the industry was really in its infancy. Uh, There were only five in the U.S., and we were number six. Uh, Now there's over 2,000 and about 4,000 worldwide. Um, We first started out with uh, producing brandies, aged brandies, unaged brandies called eau de vie. Um, Then we moved into grain spirits such as um, gins and vodkas. And now we do a wide range of products from liqueurs to vermouths um, right into medicinal products. So how has the pandemic impacted business? Well, it's really really created a shift um, in our business because now we find ourselves in the uh, position of producing hand sanitizers. Um, as you know, there's uh, been an extreme shortage of medical supplies here, well, worldwide, but especially here in the U.S. And um, there's been a great need um, to produce these um, sterile products for our healthcare uh, workers. So we received a email from the FDA oh, probably two months ago. Um, outlining this need. And with it came along a formula. So I should explain that typically when a distiller brings a product to market, we file a formula, we file label approval, and months later we can have a product out on the market. Uh, Because there was such urgency around this, the FDA said if you follow the World Health Organization's formula for this hand sanitizer, um, we'll forgive any um, approvals and you can move right ahead and go immediately into production. And that's what we did, um, which is good because business is certainly off. I mean, all the um, most all the restaurants are closed. Um, and of course, the um, retail is severely cut back. So that's what we did. We launched into this hand sanitizer production, not as a profit center, but just to kind of keep our, our workers going. Uh, we're basically putting this out at cost uh, to help healthcare facilities. And it was really kind of eye-opening and a little shocking to see how desperate the situation actually was. I mean, we were getting calls from uh, hospitals in Boston, as far away as Colorado, um, looking for um, these this hand sanitizer, just a really basic um, need of theirs. And uh, so what we had to do was limit our product. We, ha- we have limited production, but limited our output to um, eight healthcare facilities. And then we we have a waiting list beyond that of um, healthcare facilities that we can supply as we get um, more inventory. And the challenge has been um, the, the raw materials, specifically as simple as the plastic bottles this, these go in. Um, most of them come out of China, and a lot of plants are still shut down. So that's been a real challenge, um, trying to just keep um, product uh, flowing here. Wow, I didn't realize that the demand was really this high. 
Yeah, there really has been. I mean, right down to the post office has been calling us looking for hand sanitizers. FedEx has has been calling us. So, you know, hopefully things now are easing up a little bit. Um, Supplies are coming in. And um, so we're we're not both feet into this because we're a craft distiller. We're not a hand sanitizer producer. Um, But we just wanted to respond to this need and, and kind of give back. And it's interesting because it kind of dovetailed into another medical project we were doing for a doctor out of Stanford um, who's associated with Columbia University, producing a medical tincture for him for uh, irritable bowel and dyspepsia. And that's now in medical trials down at uh, Stanford Hospital. So, you know, we're a small little craft distiller, but we've been branching out in a number of different directions um, by happenstance and, and opportunity. Wow, that's really cool uh, to do a, a medical distill. Yeah, it, it has been fun. And that came out uh, about because of our work with um, with gins, actually, and in macerating, cold macerating botanicals in their distillation. Uh, we showed up on the radar of Columbia, and they contracted with us to, uh, to produce the active ingredient and the placebo. And uh, both are being tested uh, right now in Stanford. We might have to do a follow-up podcast on that. <laughs> yeah, we can do that. So I'm also curious how the lockdown has shifted how you and your family eat. Well, you know, it it hasn't changed drastically, I should say, because we're, we're scratch cookers, you know, so we're not planning out a week's worth of meals. Um, everything we cook is from scratch. You know, we try to source locally. We can. But, you know, it's it's kind of a foraging concept. Even when we go to the grocery, um, you know, it's kind of what's fresh, what's available, you know, what looks good. And we tended to shop, you know, probably every two to three days. Well, that has changed because they don't want you in the grocery every couple of days. So now we're trying to limit our visits and uh, plan a little bit more in advance. But um, I have to say, with you know the exceptions of certain things, you know, with red meats and chicken going out of stock, um, uh, it hasn't really changed um, our eating habits uh, drastically. Uh, you know, we're fortunate that we do live in a rural area, so there are uh, farms you can even forage in your yard for for certain um, foods. So it's um, which we do in the springtime. So it's it hasn't really um, impacted us that dramatically. I'm curious what you forage in the springtime. Um, one of our favorite things are. Um, uh, these uh, raviolis we do with wild, what we call wild greens. So what we'll do is um, forage the young dandelion and um, garlic grass with a little ricotta, uh, fold it into a ravioli, and then fry it in butter with pine nuts. And that's just the the Ritz in the spring. It's just absolutely wonderful. Um, also, ramps um, are the first spring um herb to come up and so we'll cook with those sometimes too which is a very oniony type of uh of green wow that sounds really delicious um have you uh, also invented any new cocktails well that that's ongoing i mean because we um we're always doing R&D with cocktails uh, because we now have a tasting room at the distillery. Uh, we like to do a, uh, a new offering every week. So typically, uh, Margaret and I, my wife, the other, the co-owner, um, will do our R&D you know, usually around this time in the morning, about 10 a.m., right after coffee and launch into, um, again, uh, what, what we have available. Um, we have some wonderful things to work with. Uh, we do a vermouth for a winery out of uh, 
Rhode Island called Greenvale, which is nice, fresh botanical vermouth. We like to use that in a lot of cocktails. Um, and, and look uh, for fresh ingredients. You know, again, there's a lot of herbs available in the herb garden right now for making um, simple syrups, rosemary simple syrups, lavender simple syrups, which add a tremendous amount to cocktails. Um, today, what we're doing is actually um, a vermouth, I mean, uh, a grenadine from scratch. And um, typically, you know, grenadine is a pomegranate syrup, but ironically, the largest selling grenadine on the market just contains sugar water and red dye number four, has no pomegranate in it. Um, this is a wonderful recipe we got from a, a bartender in Litchfield uh, that contains pomegranate, pomegranate molasses, um, rose blossoms, orange blossoms, and just an absolutely delicious um uh, grenadine. So we're going to be combining that with our kirsch, which is a uh, eau de vie made from Montmorency cherries, um, and a little bit of vodka, uh, and making so and some of the green veil vermouth, and making a um, a Westford Hill Martini of the day out of it, which is yet to be named. So, so that's that's our offering for today, and that'll change next week. So, you know, and we love uh, talking with bartenders uh, because there's just so many that have wonderful recipes themselves. So we have a lot of interaction uh, with the trade as well as we develop these things. So have you learned anything new about yourself or had any epiphanies or any thoughts about the future during this time? Well, I'll qualify that at 64. There's very few surprises that you find out about yourself. But, you know, that said, I mean, this has been a uh, a very interesting time. Um, you know, in terms of being sequestered and at home, uh, you know, again, we live in a very, very rural area. There, there are no neighbors. So, you know, we're <laughs> a bit used to that. Um, but also, you know, we have multi-generations living under our roof, too. You know, we have a 20-year-old son, an 8-year-old granddaughter, my wife and I in our 60s, which creates for a very dynamic household in itself and uh, a very nurturing one for the granddaughter. And so that in itself, um, uh, I think, takes a place of a lot of social interaction that we might have outside the house. Um, you know, we're well beyond needing to be on that beach at spring break for a social stimulus. Um, so it's um, kind of we've been reaching within ourselves a little bit more than perhaps we have been. Um, again, at our age, you have a, a smaller circle of friends that tend to close in, too. So um, I have to say it has been going um, surprisingly well uh, in terms of our, uh, our, our self-quarantine here. Well, that's good to hear. I hope uh, at least business goes back to normal soon. Yeah, well, you know, that's the, the interesting thing is that and maybe that's the other challenge, too, and something you're learning about yourself is that we're very accustomed to um, forecasting out our, our business where we plan on being six months or now eight months, so forth. You have these business plans and uh, all of that's just out the window because we don't know where things are, are going within the next um, six to 12 months even. Um, you know, the restaurants will be opening up to limited capacities. Um, retail, you know, will we'll probably come back a little bit, the wine shops. But, you know, we're off about 75% on business. So it's, uh, it's, it's significant right now. 
Yeah, that's really significant. Um, do you think you'll see more business with the tasting room? Yeah, that's that's going to be interesting. We just opened um, for the season last weekend, and I was surprised that anybody showed up. Um, but they have been. Um, certainly not what we're used to, because I think people are still very, very cautious, as they should be, about going out. There's a lot of protocol around um, how they enter our business, um, how many we can allow on premise, um, a lot of uh, state uh, mandates around that. Um, so hopefully as people become more comfortable uh, with going out, because they're certainly sort of chomping at the bit to go out. People do want to, they're getting antsy and want to go out. Um, so we'll see how they, they react and how they acclimate to, uh, to this new normal. Yeah, I definitely think a lot of people are looking for outdoor spaces right now, so it may turn out to work out well. Yeah, and we can, um, because again, we are in such a rural location, we can, um, you know, accommodate a, a few more than you might normally in a tasting room. You know, we can push them out on the porches to have their cocktails and and we've limited tours to only four people by appointment only. So, um, so yes, things are things are adapting and I think we'll do just fine. Well, I'll have to visit soon. Yes, please do. Around the Table is a personal production of Dr. Tesbird and Professor Stanley Uliajak, who are anthropologists of food and nutrition and of household uncertainty and insecurity. The opinions and ideas expressed are solely those of the contributors and podcasters and do not reflect the opinions of any university body. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs>